Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. Forum Communications is proud to be part of The Trust Project. To learn more, see thetrustproject.org. You hear it all the time, an expression, if only I could have been a fly on the wall, you know, silently and secretly observing something from afar, a spy with wings. Well, here's your chance, sort of. Imagine this, you are a fly on the wall, the wall of a bar named the Elbow Room in Bismarck, North Dakota. It's downtown in Bismarck proper, near the railroad tracks. The year is 1994, and it's almost closing time on Sunday, July 31st. Actually, it's after midnight, almost 1 a.m., early Monday, August 1st. All day long, you have buzzed around the bar, and all day long, music. You've heard Crazy by Aerosmith six times, and all those other artists over and over again. Janet Jackson, Elton John, Mariah Carey. Earlier in the evening, the Minnesota Vikings lost their preseason opener against last season's Super Bowl champs, the Cowboys. But now, the Elbow Room bar has grown quiet. You buzz around and watch the bartender as she tidies up the place before closing. And there are four other people in the Elbow Room. Two male customers sitting at the bar and two women, blackjack dealers, off in the corner wrapping things up for the night. One of the women grabs her purse, says goodnight and heads out the door, while the other woman walks across the room and seats herself near the two men. She orders a drink, specifically a Colorado Bulldog, and soon she strikes up a conversation with the two men. And then for another 15 minutes or so, while the bartender continues to prepare for closing, you buzz around and watch as the woman and the two men sit there talking, drinking, and talking. Finally, though, as the clock approaches 1 a.m., the young blackjack dealer and the two men leave the elbow room at the same time. They exit through the back door into the Bismarck summer heat. You buzz around a bit more until finally the bartender exits the place, locks the door behind her, and leaves you alone in the neon-painted shadows of the elbow room. Such is the riveting short life of a fly on the wall. Sometimes you witness stunning and amazing events. Other times your puny indoor galaxy is mundane. Nothing but humans sipping and spilling their drinks, football teams winning or losing, and the same music over and over again. But as insignificant as some details may seem to be at the time, 
Nobody, not a human, not a fly on the wall, nobody can fully anticipate what important events are playing out right there in front of them, nor which details just might be worth remembering later. Details that someday might help to answer important questions. Questions like, what did those two men look like? Or, what were their names? Who were the two men that left the elbow room with a young blackjack dealer in the early morning hours of August 1st, 1994, just 36 hours before that young blackjack dealer vanished forever? Because, ultimately, that's what happened to her. She disappeared. No, not that night, but very soon after, and nobody has heard from her since. Her name is Michelle Juleson, although she went by Shelley, and Shelley's disappearance is the subject of Season 7 of Dakota Spotlight. Dakota Spotlight was recently allowed to access Shelley's police file. It's a file that tells a story, the story of Shelley's life at the time, of her fears of being followed, of harassment. It's a story of three major investigations over the last 28 years. In this season, you'll be a fly on the wall and follow along with investigators. You'll watch the play-by-play of the first few days of this investigation. But you'll also hear from Shelley's parents and some of her friends. And you'll also hear my present-day interviews with retired investigators as they look back on this very puzzling and frustrating case. It's a story with several twists and turns and curious happenings and events. Some of the questions we will attempt to answer are, who was harassing Shelley Juleson just before she vanished, and why? Why is a whole section of Shelley's police file missing? And who were those two men that left with Shelley at 1 a.m. on August 1st, 1994? And many, many more questions. Welcome to Season 7 of Dakota Spotlight. Um, She's a fun-loving girl. She liked to party. How would you get abducted from 140 American to 300 block East Broadway without somebody seeing it on a Tuesday afternoon? She never told Tony who this guy was. She's gonna run errands. She's gonna go get her paycheck. Told her anytime after two o'clock she could stop by and pick him up and she never did show. He actually had some real mental issues You need to call the police, and you need to get yourself a protection order. I think something happened to her. I think somebody took her. And I don't recall if any of them were a police officer. Was one of the group allegedly harassing Shelly at the bar. But I know that she was harassed by multiple people. And I was specifically looking for that car, Shelly's car. Bartender at the Burnt Creek. Tony worked at the Burnt Creek Club. There was two two railroad workers, and I thought they talked to one. The evidence sheets should have still, and there should have been copies of it all attached to the report. Because I don't think they did any kind of a job at all on trying to find Shelly. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. 
For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 1994, in Bismarck, North Dakota. It's been a warm day in the 90s, 33 Celsius, and most of western North Dakota has been blanketed in a thick, hazy sky, a result of a bad grass fire up in Canada. But by 9 p.m., when the phone rings at the Bismarck Police Department, the wind has picked up and the air has cooled off. On the other end of the line, a guy named Woodworth wants to file a missing persons report. The dispatcher sends a cop named Carvel to a neighborhood in South Bismarck. There, he locates the address 140 American Avenue, a trailer home, where he meets with two men, 35-year-old Kevin Woodworth and his father, 59-year-old Richard Woodworth, the homeowner. They want to report Shelley Juleson as missing. Officer Carvel jots down the details on paper. 35-year-old Kevin Woodworth is Shelley's former boyfriend and father of their one child, three-year-old Jaden. He works at a company called Miller Insulation. Kevin Woodworth and Shelley Juleson are no longer a couple, but Kevin sees his son Jaden a lot, he says, on weekends and pays child support to Shelley. And Kevin's father, Richard, often babysits his grandson. The father-son duo explained the situation to Officer Carvel. Shelley dropped off Jaden yesterday, Tuesday, August 2nd, right there at Richard's trailer home. This was midday, about 12.30. She told her son's grandfather she'd be back in two or three hours, but knowing Shelley, Richard Woodworth took it all with a grain of salt. He figured he'd see her again in about four or five hours, and she might even possibly call at that time to ask if Jaden could stay with him a little longer. No problem for him, though. Richard liked having his grandson around. Shelley wasn't punctual, but she was responsible enough. But here they were now at 10 p.m. the next night, and still no Shelley. And most concerning of all, no phone call either. Shelley is 26 years old, they tell Carvel. About 5 foot 6, reddish brown hair. She drives a light blue 1987 Ford Thunderbird. She works as a blackjack dealer at various bars in town. Kevin Woodworth says that he's called around town a bit, looking for Shelley. He's spoken with a couple of her co-workers, a gal named Bonnie, a guy named Tony. He doesn't know their last names. And Kevin had also called Shelley's parents, who live in Center, North Dakota, about 40 miles to the northwest of Bismarck. Shelley wasn't there, and they hadn't heard from her either. Then Kevin Woodworth shared something else he had learned, something that really didn't make sense. He had also called Shelley's employer to see if she ever picked up her paycheck, but she hadn't. He found this very suspicious because Shelley was flat, broke, and had a lot of financial challenges. Shelley dearly needed that paycheck. Officer Carvel jots it all down and then asks Kevin for Shelley's home address. She lives in a trailer park at 716 West Suite Avenue. Officer Carvel drives a two-mile trip in about eight minutes, where he locates Shelley's trailer, number 11. There's no sight of her Ford Thunderbird. Carvel walks to the door. 
He can hear the TV is on inside, so he knocks. He knocks again and again, no answer. He checks the door handle. It's locked and secure. Carvel speaks with a neighbor and learns that Shelley often leaves the TV and lights on when she's gone. I haven't seen her for a few days, the neighbor says. Later that night, he files his missing persons report at Bismarck PD. And that's about it, at least for this day. As Wednesday, August 3rd comes to a close, most things go on as usual in Bismarck, North Dakota. Radio stations continue to play Aerosmith and Mariah Carey on repeat. Bartenders and blackjack dealers and police officers will eventually put their heads down on their pillows and fall asleep. That grass-fed, hazy sky would certainly return in the morning. And Michelle Julson, otherwise known as Shelley, well, she would probably be back too. Before we continue, there's something important for us to all keep in mind here. First of all, everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Nobody has been tried nor even arrested for any crime related to Shelley's disappearance. We need to always remind ourselves of this fact. Innocent until proven guilty. But there's something else that is very important to keep in mind. This episode, and much of the rest of this season, is a story based much on police reports. We need to apply critical thinking here and understand that while these police reports offer invaluable insight into the investigation, they are not a type of holy grail of truth. You will hear all kinds of statements made to police about various individuals in Shelley's life, and there will be a bit of finger-pointing going on. While it does feel reasonable to assume that those statements were in fact made to police, that does not mean those statements were true or necessarily accurate. Sometimes people lie to police. They have a motive. Sometimes they misremember things or just get it wrong. And the police make mistakes too. Let's be good investigators ourselves and keep an open, fair, and critical eye on the statements people made to police. It's Thursday, August 4th, 1994, and over at the Bismarck Police Department, police officers get to work on a few different cases. A poodle named Tuffy was stolen outside of Staymart on East Divide Avenue. The owner tied him to a post, and when he came out, the little guy was just gone. Elsewhere in town, a vehicle had been vandalized up on North 17th Street. But over in the detective's unit, things start ramping up a smidgen in that missing persons case that Carvel logged last night. In the early afternoon, Detective Dennis Walls receives a phone call from Linda Juleson, mother of the missing woman. Linda tells Walls she's worried about her daughter. It's not like Shelley to leave her son that long, certainly not without staying in touch. Something's not right. It's been over 48 hours since she's been seen. Detective Walls tells Mrs. Juleson to call him back at 4 p.m. once he's had time to read the report. He also asks if Michelle uses alcohol. She tells him, yes, alcohol and marijuana, and Shelley's had some financial troubles and was considering applying for food stamps. And then Mrs. Juleson shares something else that is on her mind. She says Kevin Woodworth, Shelley's ex-boyfriend and father of their child, was going to try to get custody of their son. Meanwhile, on bar stools and at blackjack tables all around town, the news of Shelley's absence is spreading like a Canadian grass fire. 
Shelley's friends and colleagues, bartenders, cocktail waitresses, and blackjack dealers, they're all tossing a question around the Bismarck bar circuit. Has anyone seen or heard from Shelley? The blackjack dealers all work for the FALF, the Fort Abraham Lincoln Foundation, which manages gaming in town. They are a network of staff, a crew, you might say. They deal cards around town at restaurants, hotels, lounges, and bingo halls. And Shelley Julson is a part of that crew. Sometimes the FALF places her in North Bismarck, sometimes in South Bismarck. Lately, she's been working at the Burnt Creek Club up north and the Elbow Room downtown. At 2.45 p.m., Detective Walls gets a call from Shelley's supervisor at FALF. Sheila Rath tells him that Shelley never did pick up her paycheck, and they haven't heard from her. Sheila Rath is also the first person to pass on some information from a guy named Tony, a bartender in town. Sheila says, I heard that Shelley called a guy named Tony last Sunday night. I don't know Tony's last name. He's a bartender at the Burnt Creek Club. When Shelley called Tony, she was apparently very upset about something that happened between her and Kevin Woodworth, father of her child. She wouldn't tell Tony what happened, not over the phone, but she was upset. Detective Walls jots it down in his notebook. Tony, last name question mark, bartender, Burnt Creek Club. In the mid-afternoon, Detective Walls calls the local media and asks them to run a missing persons story. TV stations and the Bismarck Tribune agree to do so. At 4 p.m., Detective Walls hears from Shelley's mother again. This time, she walks right into the police station. Detective Walls tells her that teletypes have been sent out and that the media will run the story that evening and in the Tribune the next day. He then sends Mrs. Julson home so that someone would be there to answer the phone in case Shelley or anyone else were to call. A half an hour later, Shelley's father, Wes Julson, arrives at the PD. He wants to know if they have any new information. We're working on it, Walls tells him. We'll be in touch. It's 7 p.m., and Detective Walls and another cop named Shibley, they want to speak with that bartender named Tony. So they take a warm drive to North Bismarck to the Burnt Creek Club. It's a Western-style saloon, not much to look at from the outside, but no matter what Burnt Creek patrons are looking for, isn't outdoors anyway. Inside Burnt Creek is where it's at. Inside with the booze, the darts, inside with the gambling and the music. Detective Walls and Officer Shibley locate 36-year-old Anthony Holm, otherwise known as Tony. It turns out that Tony Holm and Shelley have been dating off and on. Tony tells the investigators that he'd spoken with Shelley a few times this week, up until the time she disappeared. In the wee hours of Monday, August 1st, Shelley called Tony on the phone. He said it was about 3.15 a.m. Over time, investigators would learn that making phone calls in the middle of the night was common behavior for Shelley. Many of her friends were blackjack dealers, waitresses, and bartenders, and they all held odd hours. Tony tells the investigators that when she called on that early Monday morning, Shelley had wanted to talk to him, but Tony had an early appointment on Monday, and he told her he needed to sleep. Shelley had been upset about something at the time, but wouldn't say what it was exactly. The last time Tony spoke with Shelley was over the phone, he says, on Tuesday morning, same day she went missing, before she dropped off her son at the boy's paternal grandfather's home. 
Tony says he spoke with Shelley for about two hours from 10 a.m. to noon on Tuesday. Tony says Shelley told him that Kevin Woodworth had done something to her, but wouldn't tell him what it was. She said she couldn't talk about it over the phone. Interestingly, Tony Holm doesn't elaborate for the investigators what he and Shelley did talk about during those two full hours on Tuesday from 10 a.m. to noon, just before she vanished. Or if he did elaborate, Detective Walls didn't jot it down in his report that day. Walls asks Tony Holm what more he knows about Shelley's relationship with Kevin Woodworth. The following is what Detective Walls recorded in his police report, narrated by a colleague of mine. I asked if she and Kevin had any past problems. He said that she had told him in the past that she felt like a whore every time she asked Kevin for a favor. Every time Kevin did something for her, he expected her to sleep with him. Tony told us that he knows that Kevin gave Michelle a black eye on Mother's Day this year. Tony said that Michelle and him went out for some drinks that night before Mother's Day. He said that Kevin was babysitting Jaden. Tony said that Michelle called Kevin and asked him if he would watch Jaden until morning. And Kevin told her that she had to be over to pick him up by 6 a.m. Tony and Michelle went over to pick up Jaden, and he later found out that Kevin gave her a black eye. He said that there were other problems between the two of them in the past also. Walls and Shibley leave the Burnt Creek Club and head over to Shelley's residence at 716 West Suite. On the way there, they cruise the parking lots at bus depots and the airport, scanning for any sight of Michelle's Ford Thunderbird. Once at her home, they take a walk around the perimeter of Shelley's trailer. From Wall's report. The windows at the rear of the trailer house were open. We were unable to see inside. The front door was locked. There was a notice from the Bismarck Tribune stuck to the front door. We found several pieces of mail in the mailbox. A number of those were what appeared to be medical bills. Walls and Shibley then head back to Bismarck PD, where, at around 9 p.m., Walls phones up Shelley's parents. He asks more questions, learns new things. No, Shelley doesn't have any credit cards, Mrs. Juleson tells him. And someone had run up a $3,000 phone bill on Shelley's phone, and it was now disconnected. Shelley thought a friend of hers was doing this, and it all happened months ago. Walls asks Mrs. Juleson about Shelley's relationship with Kevin Woodworth. I asked what type of relationship Michelle and Kevin had. She said that after Jaden was born, the relationship went downhill. She said that she had stopped and talked to Kevin today when she was in Bismarck. She said that Kevin told her then that he had not seen Michelle since last Friday. Linda said that she pointed out the fact that he had earlier mentioned that he'd babysat Jaden every weekend for the past few weeks. She said that Kevin and his father talked it over, and he then told her that the last time he had seen Michelle was this last Sunday. Linda thought it was strange that he would be confused on that. It's 10 p.m. Thursday. Shelley's father, Wes, calls Detective Walls and asks, Well, has anyone looked around inside Shelley's trailer? No, they hadn't. The police would need a family member present to enter the home. Wes Juleson and Detective Walls agreed to meet the next day at 3 p.m. When Thursday, August 4th, came to a close, Shelley had not been seen for two and a half days. 
The next day, Friday, August 5th, would become one of the most active and intensive days of the investigation into the whereabouts of Shelley Juleson. It's Friday, August 5th, 1994, and the capital city of North Dakota is in getting-ready-for-the-weekend mode, indoors and outdoors. Inside, there's a back-to-school clothing sale at Kirkwood Mall, and out under the sun, there's a farmer's market, an open tennis tournament for kids, and a golf tournament for seniors. The Bismarck Police Department chips away at the usual cases, a car break-in on Camden Loop, the storefront was vandalized on East Main. And when head of investigations Lieutenant Myron Heinley arrived at work that day, he probably would have half expected and certainly hoped to learn that the missing Julson girl had resurfaced, possibly crawled back home with her tail between her legs, apologies all around after a temporary flight from her adult responsibilities, a girl who just needed to get away for a while. But no, Shelley Julson had not returned. So Heinley thinks it over, then picks up the phone and calls the North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigations. He asks if they might provide assistance with an aerial search for Shelley's car. Within an hour, Dick Olson at BCI gets back to him. Sure, he says, let's do it. Meanwhile, Detective Dennis Walls gets a message to call a guy named Larry, a friend of Shelley's. Larry tells Walls that he knows Shelley very well. They went to high school together in the town of Center. He last spoke with her about 10 days prior. Larry said that Shelley and Kevin were having problems. Shelley had discussed getting a restraining order on him a couple months ago. This was after Kevin had shown up drunk at Shelley's home late one night. Larry also talks about Tony, the bartender at Burnt Creek Club. Tony and Shelley had been dating off and on. Shelley was trying to break off this relationship with Tony, and things had gone sour. So sour that Shelley was getting harassed by Tony's friends whenever she worked dealing blackjack at the Burnt Creek Club. The harassment had bothered Shelley so much that she had asked her supervisor if she could get transferred to a different bar. Oh, and another thing, Larry said. Michelle's car had some damage to it recently. There's a hole in the radiator and her car would overheat. I don't think she would leave town in that car, Larry said. At 10.40 a.m., Detective Walls contacts Kevin Woodworth, asks him to come down to the station. Kevin says, sure, I'll be right down. While waiting on Kevin to arrive, Walls gets another call from another friend of Shelley, this time a young woman named Holly, from Walls' report. She told me that she had talked to Michelle a short time back and was told that Michelle had been getting harassing and threatening phone calls. She said that she was told she was getting five to ten calls a day. She thought the calls were coming from another woman. She told me that Tony, whom Michelle was dating, is now dating another woman. I asked Holly when she last had contact with Michelle. She said it was this last Tuesday. She said they had talked on the phone sometime between 11 and 12. In the morning, she said that she told Michelle that she should stop by later in the afternoon, but never heard from Michelle after that.
Midday, Friday, and nobody has heard from Shelly since Tuesday. Last trace of her was when Shelly dropped off Jaden at the Woodworth home on American Avenue. Something wasn't adding up. A young woman with financial problems says she's going to pick up her paycheck, but then never does. Sure, she was not the most punctual person, perhaps, but responsible enough to call and let people know what's going on. Now it's been a full three days since anyone heard from her. Bismarck PD adds more resources to the case. One resource is Officer Julie Thompson. She's sent to Gateway Bingo to see if Shelley played bingo there on Tuesday. The following is from her police report, narrated by a colleague of mine. Sergeant Walls asked me to go to Gateway Bingo to see if they knew if Juleson was at bingo on Tuesday. At about 11 a.m., I went to Gateway Bingo and spoke with the manager, Ruth Tronson. I showed her the picture of Juleson, and she recognized her right away as being a regular customer. She said that she did not work herself on Tuesday or Wednesday. I asked her to check the prize payout sheets for Tuesday and Wednesday. She called the Fargo office, and they checked Tuesday, with no indication that Juleson won anything, and they had not received Wednesdays in the mail, but would check as soon as they got it and call back. I asked for a list of employees who were working on Tuesday and Wednesday. I was told by Ruth to come back at about 12.30, as they would have the workers there for the afternoon session at that time, and some of them could look at the pictures of Juleson and see if they remembered her being in on Tuesday. Shelley's ex-boyfriend, Kevin Woodworth, father of her child, arrives at Bismarck PD. Detective Walls sits down with him. When did you last see her? Walls asks. It was last Friday, he says. I dropped off some money for her at her trailer. He said Shelley had been having problems with her air conditioner and stove and other things. She'd asked him for 50 bucks. Kevin also shares that Shelley asked him that day how to get caller ID on her landline so she could figure out who was making those hang-up phone calls at her house. Kevin said that she asked him about caller ID when he was there. He said that she told him that she had been getting prank phone calls. He said she told him the calls had come in at all hours of the day and night. She was getting 10 to 15 calls a day. He told her to make a police report, but doesn't know she did. Walls asked Kevin if Shelley had any other boyfriends. Kevin told him, yes, Tony, the bartender at Burnt Creek Club. Shelley and Tony had been dating off and on for about a year. Walls asks Kevin if he himself and Shelley had had any fights or arguments. Kevin acknowledged that they had. In fact, they'd had one about two months ago. I asked if they ever had fights. He said that they had. He said that they had won a couple of months ago. He said that Michelle had called and told him that she was playing bingo and winning. He said that she was out with friends and wanted to know if he could keep Jaden for the night. He said that she arrived to pick up Jaden at about 6.30 a.m. and they had a fight. He said that she had slapped him several times. I asked if he hit her, and he said that he did not. He said that he has never hit any woman. He said that he has been slapped by other women, but he refuses to hit a woman. Detective Walls asks Kevin if Shelley was known to just run off for long periods of time and abandon her responsibilities. Kevin says, no, no way. She often drops their son off at Kevin's parents' house when running errands. 
Shelley's always running late, but she always calls to let people know. And besides, my dad likes watching Jaden, so it's not a problem, he says. When asked, Kevin says he has not heard about damage to Shelley's radiator, but he knew about some other damage to her car recently. Someone had keyed the Thunderbird. In other words, somebody had taken a key or other sharp pointed object and purposefully vandalized the car, scratching the paint on one side. How long has Shelley lived at her current address, the cop asks. Three to six months, he says. Kevin says that he himself did not help Shelley move in. Someone else did that. Tony, bartender, Burnt Creek Club. I asked him if he was battling Michelle for custody of Jaden. He said that he was not. He said that as far as he was concerned, she was a good mother. He said that she did everything within her means to take care of Jaden. Kevin said that he gave her financial help from time to time. Kevin told me that he had been babysitting Jaden every weekend for the past month. He said that he likes to spend as much time as he can with Jaden. At the end of his report, Detective Walls noted two details from his interview with Kevin. It should be noted that when Kevin came into the investigation section, he told me right away that he had a nervous stomach the last couple of days, and he had not been able to keep anything down. He told me that he had taken a couple of days off work today and yesterday because he was upset and afraid he might fall off a scaffolding at work. It should also be noted that he had told Michelle's mother that he had last seen Michelle on Friday which changed his story when she confronted him about the statement that he had been watching Jaden every weekend for some time. He then remembered that he had last seen her on this last Sunday. I'd like to point out here that I spent a lot of effort attempting to contact Kevin Woodworth over the last few weeks, because it's very important that Kevin is offered an opportunity to tell his side of things and to comment on this story. I left multiple voicemails on his phone, at least the number I believed was his, and never heard anything back. I texted and called his son Jaden, but didn't get through to him either. I drove to his brother's home twice and left my card and asked someone there to let Kevin know I was trying to contact him. Finally, last night, two days before the release of this episode, I made contact with him in person. Kevin has been getting my messages, and he respectfully declines to comment or take part in this story. He told me he said everything he's ever going to say about all of this. I left my number with him, and he knows the door is always open in the event that he changes his mind and wants to be heard. I've also made great efforts to contact Tony. At the time of this recording, July 19th, 2022, I've been unable to contact him, but I'm confident that that will change soon. And just like Kevin, the door is absolutely open for Tony to share his comments and memories in this podcast. Hopefully that can happen soon. Now, let's go back to Friday, August 5th, 1994. It's Friday afternoon, and the capital city of North Dakota is ready Freddy for the weekend. But still, there's no hide nor hair of Michelle Juleson. Officer Julie Thompson drives to the business office of the Fort Abraham Lincoln Foundation to speak with Shelley's employer. A staff member named Peg shows her Shelley's unclaimed paycheck. Before leaving, Thompson says, Do you know where Shelley does her banking? Back at Bismarck PD, Thompson stays on the trail, or perhaps we should say looks for any trail at all. She calls another bingo hall in Bismarck and asks them to check if a Shelley Juleson won any big payouts on Tuesday or Wednesday. They take a look into it, but no, nothing, no Shelley here. And then Thompson gets a little bit of luck tracking Shelley's banking activity. 
She learns from Bismarck National Bank that Shelley had deposited a check for $50 Saturday, three days before she went missing. This was possibly the $50 that Kevin Woodworth said he dropped off with Shelley on Friday. And on Monday, Shelley transferred some money from her savings account to her checking. Thompson also is told that two more checks have been posted. The bank would have to get back to her on exactly when and where the checks were written. This was good news, good fodder to build a timeline of Shelley's movements. Because if they can figure out where Shelley has been, maybe they can unravel where she's gone. But for investigator Julie Thompson, the money trail would have to wait for now. Now it was time to search Shelley's home. At 1 p.m., Detectives Walls and Thompson arrive at trailer number 11 at 714 West Suite Avenue. They're met there with Shelley's father and brother. The manager of the trailer court lets them inside. This from Julie Thompson's report. The place was very messy, but I had been told by Peg Mack that she knew Juleson to be a poor housekeeper. It did not appear that there had been a struggle or anything in the trailer. There was moldy tomato soup and bowls on the table and on the counter. There were dirty dishes in the dishwasher, in the sink, and there were dirty clothes lying throughout the trailer, on the floor, and on the furniture. The TV was on. I went through the garbage and found a lot of mail in it. There were collection notices from U.S. Bank for $2,757.04, Student Loan Finance Corporation indicating an overdue bill, and $200 owed as of June 20th, 1994. A letter from a lawyer indicating that she owed H&R Block $35. A letter from AR Audit Services, dated July 21st, indicating that she owes Kirkwood Family Medical Center $33.35. A letter from U.S. West, dated July 18th, indicating that she owed $176.65, which was overdue. These items were taken with permission of Jilson's father. I also took a bank statement from the trailer from the Bismarck National Bank. I turned the TV off before leaving, and the trailer was secured, and Sergeant Walls took an extra key for the trailer in the event that we need to get in later. As they exit Shelley's home, Detective Walls has a word with Shelley's father, Wesley Jilson. After we were finished inside the house, I asked Wesley what he knew about Michelle's boyfriends. He said that he did know that Kevin was always threatening to take Jaden away from her because he did not think she was a fit mother. He told me that he always seemed to want sex from her whenever he did her a favor. He also told me that she'd been having problems with Tony. He said that Michelle had called and told him that Tony had showed up at the trailer drunk one night. She finally told Tony she was going to call somebody if he did not leave. Wesley said that Michelle also told him that Tony's friends were picking on her when she was at work. He said they were calling her a whore and a slut. He said that he told her that he should confront Tony about it. Back at the station, Julie Thompson gets a call from Bismarck National Bank. They have more information on those two checks. One check was written on Saturday. $15 paid to the order of Burnt Creek Club. The other check was for $45 paid to a company called Rent to Own. And then Detective Wall's phone rings again. It's another friend of Shelley's, Shannon. Shannon says she spoke with Shelley on Monday. They talked about getting together on Tuesday with their kids to go swimming. Shannon echoes what the others have been saying about Shelley's life. 
Shelley had money problems. She was broke. She was getting harassing phone calls, hang-up calls. She says Shelley suspected Tony at Burnt Creek Club of making the phone calls, and also her car had been vandalized. One interesting detail Shannon shared was this. She said Tony at Burnt Creek Club had offered to pay the deductible for the damage to Shelley's car. By late afternoon Friday, the investigation into Shelley's whereabouts is stalling out a bit. The trail just ends. The cops knew a few places Shelley had been that week, but not where she went. It was time for Bismarck PD to add two more resources to the Juleson case. One resource is Officer Troy Shaner. At 3.30, he heads to the Bismarck Airport. He's to join BCI's Dick Olson to do an aerial search for Shelley's car. The other cop to be put on this case this late Friday afternoon is Cliff Emmert. He's assigned with snooping around Bismarck's gaming scene, the bingo halls, the bars, any blackjack haunts where Shelley might have worked or been or possibly be at this very moment. And a Friday night in Bismarck is the perfect time to inject himself into that scene. That and more still to come in Season 7. Also still to come, Shelley's car is located and a peculiar pattern of harassment towards Shelley starts to take shape. Also, to their surprise, investigators learn that one of the persons harassing Shelley is one of their own, a Bismarck police officer. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, written, researched, and recorded by me, James Walner. Special thanks to my colleagues at Forum Communications for lending us their voices. That's Jim Manny, Trisha Tarinskas, Chris Kurzman, and Jeremy Fugelberg. Music by Wowza in Kalamazoo. You can check them out by searching Wowza in Kalamazoo on bandcamp.com. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group or follow me on Twitter at Dakota Spotlight. Once again, until next time, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.